you remember last week, Brian, uh, if you were with us, we're looking, well, he mentioned that we probably could have flipped last week and this week, just given the nature of today's topic, and he's right. Uh, but we're going to look today at the mission of God and the person and work of Jesus, in particular through the themes of cross and resurrection, ascension, and the Great Commission. Uh, if you have not been with us throughout the course of the, um, the course of the study, we are in week nine or ten. We're not in week one, like the handout says. That's a typo. But we have considered really that um, what the Bible gives us is a picture of a God who He Himself, throughout all of history and all time, space, right here on this earth, that He has been a God that's been on mission. He's been a God, uh, in particularly. Um, on mission to make his own name known, to make himself known in the world among the nations. We said that he uh, is a God of relationship, and therefore there at the very heart of the Trinity is a God who is uh, constantly uh, in love with himself, so to speak, not in a vain sort of way or an egotistical sort of way, but all of reality is based there in knowing a God that God knows God, and that is a wonderful, wonderful thing that He expands to all of His creation that uh, we as people might know Him as well. And so that's why you see throughout the text of Scripture that one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, that uh, He is on mission through His people to make known His, uh, His grace, His mercy, to those who are not yet His people. And uh, we are certainly continuing in that study today. So today we look at the mission of God in Jesus, cross, resurrection, and the Great Commission. There are handouts being passed out. So if you did not get one, you can find one in the back. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us, and we ask that you would be with us now as we learn to study about you and more about you. We ask, O oh Lord, that... Um, you would help us to know what you are about in this world even now. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, we looked last week at the cross and resurrection to get our conversational juices going this morning. If I were to ask you the question, what in the world was God doing on the cross? How would you answer that question? What was he up to? What was he doing as he was dying on the cross for us? He was redeeming us. Okay, great. What else? This is true. It's not untrue. What's that? Rescuing. Yeah. Why would we need rescue? <laughs> yeah, rescue from ourselves. That's right. From our sin. That's right. What else? Good. Defeating Satan. Yeah, that's right. The scriptures are clear about that. Absolutely. One last sort of boot heel to the teeth of Satan. That's right. What else? It's a great question, you know, sometimes as Christians, we don't stop and reflect and say, hey, what's, what's actually going on here as we're thinking about this man who dies on the cross and claims to be God? And, okay, so there you have it. Now let me ask you one more question. What in the world was God doing in the resurrection? I couldn't, I couldn't quite hear that. Defeating death. Defeating death, okay. Yeah, new creation, yeah. Redeeming mankind? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Okay, good. What else? 
Okay, exalting his son. Y'all ever thought about this? That uh, there were these Old Testament prophecies about uh, God coming and one day uh, redeeming, uh, redeeming his people and that he was going to die. And it's really interesting when you think about it. There was a lot, Brian mentioned this ever so briefly last week. There were a lot of people in, part, in Jewish history who claimed to be the Mashiach, which had been the Messiah, who was the anointed one of God who had come to deliver God's people. The problem is, is that when they all died, guess what? They stayed in their graves and wherever their graves are to this day, if they still exist, their bones can probably be found there, the remnants of them. Because why? They didn't ever come out. Uh, but something was unique about Jesus in that we celebrate on the third day, he rises from the dead, raises from the dead. I can't remember my grammar, pardon me. And, uh, and in so doing, he vindicates, he vindicates uh, his mission. In other words, it says, you thought, O death, that you would hold me down. And you thought that this is how things were going to be. Well, let me show you what's really up. I'm blowing the back out of death by coming out of the grave to show you that I actually am who I said I am, that I am the person that God has uh, revealed this Messiah to be. So there was also this vindication effort there as well. So that's what we're going to look at today. In your first uh, section there, you'll see a couple of quotes. One of them is someone that is one that you've seen all along as we consider what God is up to. Mission is what the Bible is all about. We could just meaningfully talk about the missional basis of the Bible as the biblical basis of mission, just simply stating there that this is, in some ways, why the Scriptures even come to us, because God is on mission. But I'd like to introduce you to another quote today. This comes from a seminary professor of mine, and I, I just think this encapsulates so well now uh, that we are on this side of the tomb and, uh, and the cross and the tomb, what in the world we are up to and where in the world God's mission goes forth even now. So read this together with me, if you wouldn't mind. The overarching story, or this overarching story, that is what we have talked about for nine weeks now, serves as a grand narrative or worldview story for Israel. Each member of the people was to see himself or herself as an heir of the story. If you have a pen, you might want to circle or underline that word heir of the story with all of its glory and shame. And as a steward of that story, that'd be the second word you could underline or circle, responsible to pass it along, pass it on to the next generation. And then thirdly, as a participant whose uh, faithfulness could play a role in God's mysterious wisdom and the story's progress. The New Testament authors, most of whom were Jewish Christians, saw themselves as heirs to the Old Testament story and as authorized to describe its proper completion in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the Messianic era that it ushered in. These authors appropriated the Old Testament as Christian scripture and they urged their audience, many of whom were Gentile Christians, to do the same. Now, what is uh, being said there? Well, very simply, that... The New Testament authors, now living on this side of the tomb, saw themselves as heirs, as participants, and as stewards of this grand narrative that had come to them in the Old Testament. And and that as an heir, they were to say, this is my story, just like it was their story, many of whom were Gentile uh, writers and Christians as well. So guess what, group of Gentiles? This is our story as well. 
but not only heirs, but stewards. It is our job to steward, to take care of, to pass along this story as well. And lastly, this idea of participation, that we take ourselves up, we, we take up the script and participate in the ongoing spread of this story, which is what we're going to look at today at the very end of our time together. So there we have it, a little bit of what is going on on this side of the tomb. I think it is very, very important for us to begin to think of those themes as heir, steward, and participant. Let's take a look maybe a little bit more specifically about what I mean when we talk about the cross, the resurrection, and ascension, and great commission. Turn with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, a very famous story about Thomas. I think Thomas sometimes gets a bad rap. He was doubting Thomas. Uh, In some ways, he was quite bold as well, but while you're turning there, uh, doubting might actually be putting it too softly. He was somebody that the Scripture said he actually didn't believe. He did not want to believe, so it's pretty interesting. But um, read with me verse uh, 24 if you've got your Bible, John 20. We're going to read a little bit of how John kind of begins to end his, his gospel. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So that was a while back. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Mm-mm, unless I see his hands, the mark of his nails, the place of my finger into the mark of his nails, and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Then eight days later, about eight days later, uh, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. <laughs> how, this ama- how this is amazing. Then he said to Thomas, Hey, put your finger here and see my hands. Could you imagine the moment? How did you know I said that? <laughs> you weren't in the room. You're asking me to now put my hands on your side. Put my fingers, uh, put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, you, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then this is in particular very, very important. John is telling us why he wrote his gospel, the whole gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, here it is, so that you may believe or that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. If you don't like the word Christ... Let's use the Christos counterpart for uh, Hebrew, that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the one. The whole reason I've written, written this gospel is so that you might know that the promised one of God is now standing in your midst. And this is very important, that Thomas's profession, when he says, my Lord and my God, is actually something that stands as paradigmatic, I think, for us as New Testament uh, believers. Thomas's exclamation, I'm reading from our sheet, was more than an expression of surprise. My Lord, my God, you know, he's taken back by this. Rather, it was a bold confession of worship that expressed who Jesus as Messiah was and encapsulated all that he had come to do. The resurrection vindicated Jesus as the one who had come to do, in fact, all that the Old Testament foretold. The resurrection was God's stamp and seal saying, See, He really is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to. And so Thomas's confession, My Lord and my God, would stand in direct contrast to what believers in the Greco-Roman world would have said. Instead of Jesus is Lord, their language was what? Caesar is Lord. He is Lord. But now 
uh, we see here in Thomas's words a very, very bold profession. You are my Lord and you are my God. And why is this so important? Well, if you consider what Jesus himself would have thought about himself, if you could turn back a gospel to a Luke chapter 24, again, another resurrection or post-resurrection narrative. Luke is telling us about uh, this final episode on the road to Emmaus. Two men are walking and Jesus sort of sidles up beside him. I think of the Seinfeld episode, the sidler or whatever he was. You know, it's the guy that kind of stands up awkwardly next to the guy. But uh, Jesus um, walks up beside them and they say, have you not heard about all that's happened in Jerusalem? Are you the only one that's not heard anything about what's been going on? And uh, then he says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? and enter into his glory. And then verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, here is the hero of the story. Jesus himself is saying, the whole Old Testament is all about me. All about me. And so for Thomas to make that profession, and for us as well, is to see that uh, God's mission has now taken a major, major leap forward because Israel's long-awaited Messiah has now come. That it's here. That the boots are on the ground. And all of the Old Testament has been pointed to for all these centuries has now been finished and fulfilled. Now, before we go on to point three there, I simply want to ask you, when you now begin to think about what God was doing on the cross and what God was doing in the resurrection... Don't you see how God has made a major leap forward in vindicating and fulfilling this mission in the world? And I want to ask, I want to ask this as a sort of a launch pad to go forward. How now then would that matter for us today? I mean, why would the cross matter? Why would the resurrection matter for us believers as we live here in this world today? I know that's a broad question, but I want to get us to think about it for just a moment. What difference does the cross and the resurrection make as we think about its juxtaposition with um, mission today? How it might fuel mission today? There's one true God and all people are called to worship Him. Yeah, there's one true God and all people are called to worship Him. What else? And how would that... Oh, there you go. There's the connection. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, and that's a lot of what Brian was talking about last week. He was talking about mercy, right? That this is a that the kingdom that Jesus brings is one of mercy and kindness to people. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's really good news knowing that God has defeated in the person of Jesus sin and its penalty. I mean, what does Paul proclaim in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians? He says, this is my job, I'm paraphrasing, to preach Christ crucified. That he is the one that has come and has died. He has risen. This is that in accordance with the scriptures he has died. This is very true. Yeah. Yeah, there you have it. If the resurrection didn't happen, 
what is foretold is not true, and all of, therefore all of us need to go home immediately. Go do something else with your Sunday mornings, right? The resurrection is the vindication that all that God has said is actually really true. What else? Anything else just to get us going here? Yes, good and loud. <laughs> Yep. The good guys really win. The story really does end happily ever after because of what happened there. I mean, you think, I can't remember where it is in the, uh, I think it's Revelation maybe 21 or 22, where John talks about that death itself will be utterly defeated. It'll be utterly done away with. He talks about it certainly in 1 Corinthians 15, that death, the last enemy, will be destroyed. Uh, death we talk about now is defeated, uh, and yet one day it will be destroyed. It's utterly amazing to think about in those terms. Well, uh, let's take a look then at this third point as we move on. I think something that we often are quite deficient in in our theology and the way that we think about things is the, is the, is the ascension. Uh, the ascension, you'll remember, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. It's briefly there in Luke uh, 24, but you'll have to flip a couple of books to go to Acts 1. Remember, or if you didn't know, uh, Luke has written both of these books, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and he sort of bridges them here uh, with the ascension and the promise of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1. But uh, remember, the ascension now is Jesus has died, he is resurrected, and then he is taken up uh, in Acts chapter 1 in what is known as his ascension. So let's read this, 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I mean, you sort of get their, uh, their thinking. Hey, you've crushed death. Is now the time? I mean, like, everything's set. If you've just dominated death, you can do this. Come on. And you can still kind of see how they're saying, are you going to still be on our agenda here? You know, sort of like, hey, you nimcompoops. Let's think maybe there might be some greater implications with this resurrection thing here than just trying to get Jesus on your own agenda. But look what he keeps saying. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive the power, receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when He had said these things... As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That is uh, language from uh, Daniel chapter 7. Not only does Jesus come with clouds, but he also goes with clouds, because clouds, if you'll remember prophetic literature and the way that things are spoken of, these are glory clouds, that the presence of God, uh, that, that, that God's glory fills the temple. Why? Not because it was just smoking incense. The incense pointed to... Uh, those glory clouds. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come into the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I think this is really, really important because what the ascension now means is that Jesus, the resurrected Lord, with holes still in his hands, now sits as our creed confesses at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and He now reigns and rules over the entirety of His church. 
This is huge for us because I think sometimes we think Jesus has sort of taken a long nap up there, wherever that is, and we just kind of have to get on about our business. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. All authority has been given to me. Now you go. You see, the ascension is a reminder that Jesus really is our King. That He reigns and that He rules. And because of His reign and His rule, He is sovereign over all. And so to know that now motivates and fuels the way that we think about getting on with mission, getting on with being participants in this story. Because guess what? If He is writing the script, He knows how it ends. If He's the one that's uh, in control of it all, He works all things unto that end. And so there's an incredible amount of liberty, freedom, and impetus for you and for me to go get on about the work. That really is what, what the ascension motivates us to. I love, uh, I love what this is saying here. Listen, uh, you saw it there. It's a subtitle there. But will you? Uh, no, you will. Will you at this time, O oh Lord, do this? Jesus looks back at them and says, no, you will. You're going to be the one who brings about this kingdom. I mean, in a, in a sense, Jesus is the one that brings it. But we're going to be the participants in it. We're going to be his witnesses. So this is the work that he's left to us by the Sending of the Spirit. The ascension guarantees the sending of the Spirit. And without that ascension, that's what happens. Well, let me ask you guys this. If then this is the case, think with me. How does the ascension then both humble and encourage us as we think about being an heir, servant, and participant in God's story and mission? Say it like this. How does knowing the fact that God really is in the person of Jesus, reigning and ruling over all things, having sent forth the Spirit into the church, how does that both encourage, how does that both humble the task that you and I have been called to in the here and now? Yes, Sherry. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Jesus, are you sure you want to build your church on us? I mean, (laughs) that thing might be destined to fail. He says, no, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Good. What else? Encourage or humble? How would that, how does that help you as you think about this task that we've been on talking about all semester? Yeah. Brian said, knowing that he is in fact in control brings an, it, it, it brings a lot of confidence to me to, in my own efforts as I seek to love my neighbor. It's, it's huge. What else? It's Colleen. Yeah. That's right. That's good. So there's, again, along those lines of encouragement because God is saying things, this is the way things ought to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, power, right? Have you did you go to early morning service? Okay, wait till wait till eleven o'clock. Brian's got something for you.
Yes, no, this, this is very true. Listen to what, um, I think it's on your sheet there. This is a quote from one of J.C. Ryle's sermons. But he's speaking about the great evangelist, George Whitfield. So read along with me. I love this. Now, he's talking about one episode where uh, George Whitfield was preaching, this, this great awakening preacher. He was preaching, and a man, uh, much like uh, what happens when I preach, is beginning to doze off. And um, this is what he says. If I had come to you to speak uh, to you to speak to you in my own name, you might as well rest your elbows on your knees and your heads on your hands and sleep. And once in a while, look up and say, "What is this babbler talking of?" But I have not come to you in my own name. No, I have come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Here he brought down his hand and foot with a force that made the building ring, and I must be heard. The congregation startled. The old man woke up at once. Aye, aye, cried Whitfield, fixing his eyes on him. I have waked you up, have I? Well, I meant to do it. I am not come here to preach to stocks and stones. I have come to you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And I must and I will have an audience. Wow. Right? Imagine if Brian did that at 11 o'clock. Um, so, this, why? Why? Because of the boldness. Because of the confidence that comes by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because why? Because Jesus reigns. He is the one that has authority over heaven and earth. And because He is the one that is on mission, primarily you and I get to take this up with a great sense of confidence and say, I must be heard. I must tell of this great news. It's wonderful. Uh, That sends us, as you can see, into this idea of the Great Commission. Where's the Great Commission? We find it in Matthew chapter 28. And that's just basically that the Lord Himself has called us because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Him. Listen to what He says. Um, Now verse 16 of 28. 28, Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee and to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him and they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Let's push pause for a second before we get into the Great Commission. This is incredibly, there is an incredible amount of confidence that can be drawn from what we just read. Here is the resurrected Lord. And some of them doubted. Okay? A man just rose from the grave and his disciples who have walked with him and known of him are looking at him and they're going, "Mm, I don't know. I don't know about this guy. Okay, so take confidence that there is great confidence to be had, meaning that even your, the Lord knows how to deal with our doubts, even in His presence. Jude, remember you talk, Jude talks about this, have mercy, be kind with those who doubt. This, this is profoundly important for us, but He says this, Jesus, and all authority in heaven on earth, and heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Lord there promises us His authority. He promises us His presence as well. To go and to be about this same great work 
that he has been about since the dawn of time, that is, making the nations to know God. See, I think sometimes we think about the Great Commission or our task as Christians as somehow disconnected from what God is doing. But if you'll remember the Collins quote from earlier on, heir, steward, participant. It's right there. It's right there. That story comes to us as well. Um, I remember uh, reading, and uh, I teach this class on evangelism for... um, the group of college students that join us every summer at uh, the beach for our summer conference with RUF. And one of my favorite stories to tell as we think about this idea of Great Commission and going out, uh, one of the ways that we think about the Great Commission often in our church, and this is rightly so, is with the concept of evangelism. We're going to go there in just a minute. This idea is evangelism is mission. And I tell the story of the uh, comedian Vegas act uh, duo. How many of you have ever heard of uh, Penn and Teller? Penn and Teller. Okay, you may know this quote. I think uh, it may have been. It's made. It may have made its rounds in our church family. But uh, Penn Gillette, he's the tall guy, incredibly cynical, snarky uh, sort of character. Um, he himself is an outspoken atheist. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't believe in God. He thinks. Christianity is a sham, but um, he has spoken of it in this way. He tells the story. You can go see this on YouTube. One night after he had had a show, done a show, an audience member had met him backstage. Maybe he had had backstage passes or something. And the audience member uh, began having conversation with Penn. And uh, I mean, sorry, with, with Gillette. You know, it's Gillette's his last name, Penn Gillette. And, and, and he, said, uh, he said that this man was incredibly kind to me. He was incredibly welcoming, and he, he, did not, he was not pushy. He was not a jerk. He was not an arrogant man. And uh, he says that, uh, Penn, I want you to have this. It's a Bible. And I wrote a little note in there if you ever want to contact me or talk about it. At this point in the video, right, I'm thinking, great, here we go. Penn is going to roast this guy for being a Christian. But instead, the opposite happens. Penn goes on to say that he really appreciated what this man did. He said uh, he was caring for him and what he had said. And the most stunning comment, this is where I quote uh, Penn himself, he says this, if you are someone who believes that you have the message of life, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them about it? Right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to get at our our guilt complex here, though there might be some of that that's good. Um, But wow, here was a professed atheist feeling loved by a Christian, though disagreeing with the content of his message, but he recognized the real care evidenced by this man from this man's own frame of reference. He knew that the internal consistency and the implications of the gospel. I think this is profound for us as we think about evangelism itself as mission, this going and telling. Um, It moves us on to our second... Well, let me just pause there. What strikes you as I share that story with you? I mean, what, what gets stirred up for good or for ill as you hear me talk about this man saying, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about Jesus if you think the other Jesus is the, is, is the way to life? I mean, it would be akin to a physician, uh, you know, finding, having a patient 
with uh, rabies, which, if my memory serves me correctly, is 100% fatal without treatment. But uh, if there is treatment, it's 100% curable. Now, what's really interesting about that is, is imagine a doctor having a patient with rabies coming and saying, I'm just, you've got rabies, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that things are the way they are. How unkind is it of that doctor and that physician in that moment to withhold the necessary cure for their dilemma? What gets stirred is you as we think about this in terms as, uh, as we think about, gosh, ongoing mission. What is my role? What is, how, how do I take up and be a participant in this great story? Jacob. Shame. shame. Okay. All right. As Brian reminds us every week, your shame is covered, and yet there's probably a good sense of that too, of being driven to it. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Sure. It's very well spoken. Others, yeah, Doug. Um, just you sharing what you did reminds me of how many times I've walked away from a conversation or meeting and thought I had an opportunity to share and I didn't do it. I was not told. Mm. And this was an inspiration to me. Yeah. Yes, yeah, to be an encouragement. Yeah, Martin, and then we'll go. Okay, go ahead. Yes. Okay. Well, I know that all of us have different sensibilities about, uh, you know, we all come from a context. We all have a narrative. The last thing I'm trying to do is to, is to mash the nerve of more guilt and more shame 
for the way that you've kept your mouth shut, to use Doug's story. I'm not saying that that is all, all bad, but I, I know how easy it would be for somebody up here with authority to say, go get your butts in gear and start sharing the gospel with people. You know what I mean? That's not where I'm going at at all. I just think that there is this, it does compel me personally to kind of say, what am I, what am I doing here? You know, am I just playing church or is this thing for real? And that's one of the things that, why it's so important that we come back to this idea of mission. Because Jesus is saying it is real. That what's happening, this, is, this involves real history here. Uh, this involves real events. Listen to what, um, what one author puts this. This comes from Leslie Newbegin. Because we're going to look a little bit here in our next five minutes. Uh, we're going to try to take a little bit of a look at evangelism itself. The mission is not, first of all, an action of ours. It's an action of God, the triune God, of God the Father, who is ceaselessly at work in all creation, in the hearts and minds of all human beings, whether they acknowledge Him or not, graciously guiding history toward its true end. Of God the Son, who has become part of this created history in the Incarnation. And of God the Holy Spirit, who has given us a foretaste of the end to empower and teach the church and to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the primal reality and mission. The rest is derivative. What is he getting at here? Well, I think that what he is getting at here is for us to begin to see that when we think about uh, mission uh, as it relates to evangelism, our telling of God's, uh, God's uh, grace in the world, we must, please hear me say this, we must remember the story We must remember all that we have talked about all semester long. And we have to have that have an influence on the way that we think about evangelism itself. This is why I wrote down in your bulletins, news versus advice. News versus advice. News is something that has happened. Brian Williams reports um, what happens in the world. Sort of, right, yeah. Uh, Cronkite did, perhaps. Um, however, uh, our daytime talk show host, Dr. Phil, Phil Donna Hugh, right? Uh, and also, you know, Oprah, they give you advice. Here's how to live a good life. Here's how things can be, here's how life can be made good for you. And we sometimes lose the, the, re, the fact that when we are talking about evangelizing or talking about evangelism, it is to remind people and to tell folks of what God has done in this world. And for us to reduce evangelism to, uh, this is my opinion, to, to mere platitudes or to mere uh, flat doctrinal statements like, God's got a wonderful plan for your life, um, you're a sinner. Here's Jesus, and now go do the same. We really shortchange, we really, really shortchange what God is up to in the world and how we are to be a participant in that mission. Now, what in the world am I meaning when I'm saying that? If you look at the book of Acts, and you look at the way that the speeches unfold in the New Testament about the way that evangelism was done, it was largely a recapitulating of the story of Israel and God's interactions with them. You can look at uh, Acts chapter 6 and listen to Stephen talk. 
You can listen to Paul in Acts 17. He's talking to pagans in Acts 17. Somebody with, people with no reference for the Judeo storyline. None. But he talks about his God being their creator and him working himself uh, into the world. Then you can look at Acts 13, where Paul is talking to Jews in Pisidian Antioch and how he references Abraham and Isaac and the Exodus and on down through the King David. He's telling the story. He's recapitulating the story of God's grace with his people. And I want to begin to urge us to be the sort of folks that re-envision the way that we think about evangelism more, more than simply flat uh, statements about uh, one salvific state or another. Does that make sense? Is that, does, I'm trying to give us new framework and new category there. Is that helpful? Yeah, go ahead, Janet. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. Um, I want to end because we're getting close and I want to provide time for maybe a few questions. Um, Harvey Kahn puts it this way. I'm trying to draw together and wed together word and deed. Last week, Brian talked about uh, mercy. This week, I'm highlighting word. Uh, but Harvey Kahn puts it great when he says this, evangelism must become gospel, show, and tell. Remember show and tell? Gospel, show, and tell. Showing mercy and preaching grace. Indeed, our evangelism, as we will see in the coming days, this is from uh, my, my class, that must be both word and deed, but it finds its impetus in a God who is at work in the world. He is restoring sinners to himself. This really is incredible news. Jack Miller writes this, that our missionary hope is founded in God's unchangeable commitment to glorify himself by bringing to himself people from all nations. Why then do you all think that it would be important that we start here, that we understand, uh, to understand uh, what it is that our task is in this great commission about telling the nations about God? Um, why do you think it would be so important for us to begin to have this framework, this, these categories for evangelism? We'll end there. Or why might that be helpful as a starting place? Yeah. Yes. Mm. And I smile during the second one. Because, but, but, but there's a benefit to having tools for those that need some tools Absolutely. to help them share their story. So I'm not really opposed to the canned tools that were given to share the gospel. Sure. Yeah, I don't want to malign that as an approach. My heart would certainly not to be throwing anybody under the bus, but rather to give us a framework of thinking about 
what is it that we're actually telling people? What is it? What is the good news? It's all that we've been talking about. That God is on mission. He's here to make Himself known. You know, that we, I think we can sort of... Redu- well, yes, you're, you're dead on. Yeah. What else? Anybody else? Thoughts on that? Okay, I've got room maybe to field one or two questions depending how long they might be. Is this helpful? I know we're trying to cram a lot in there, but again, we're doing flyby in this, in this course. There's a ton of resources out there that we could put in your hands, but any questions or comments? Yes. Yes. Yes, that's great. Just a, a relative discomfort. What are we? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Okay, good. Anything else? We wind down. Well, I'm thankful for y'all's uh, attendance, your conversations, and your thoughts today. Thank you for helping me. Let me pray and. Ask the Lord to bless us. Oh Lord, thank you. We ask that you would take these things, put them deep into our hearts, remind us that you are our sovereign Lord who now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You have given all authority unto us. That this mission now continues through us by the work of your Holy Spirit. Oh, that we might be set free to be able to do this, we pray. Uh, prepare us for worship if we're headed that way. If not, oh Lord, would you bless our days. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.